Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis, and it's a pleasure having you here. I'm excited today to be talking to John Mack Farragher, a prolific author of many books about the American West. He was a professor at Mount Holyoke College for 15 years, and currently a professor of history and American studies at Yale, where he's taught since 1993. He's here to talk about his excellent book, called Eternity Street, Violence and Justice in Frontier, Los Angeles. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Oh, um, it's my pleasure. Many people out there, myself included, when they think about Los Angeles crime history, go back to the golden age of Hollywood. Gangsters like Bugsy Siegel, Mickey Cohen, the LAPD gangster squad, etc. But, but your book is fascinating in that it documents an equally violent but less well-known era in Los Angeles, the mid-19th century, the days when L.A. was a frontier town and, as you point out in your book, as notorious and murderous, if not more so, than places like Dodge City, Kansas and Tombstone, Arizona. Let's start at the beginning, if you don't mind. Your book actually opens with a couple of stories from the 1850s, Uh, which I want to get to in a bit, but I'd like to go back further than that for my first question. Let's talk about the origins of the city of Los Angeles. Who were the original inhabitants of the area, and what were some of the early conflicts surrounding the establishment of the city? Well, the uh, original inhabitants would have been the native people of the village of Yangna, which was sited almost precisely on the center of Los Angeles that the uh, Spanish authorities built. So that village was probably there for at least 1,500 years, perhaps more. Um, and it was on the uh, west bank of the uh, Los Angeles River. Of course, they knew it by a different name. But uh, it was a perfect site for a settlement, because the Los Angeles River passes between uh, some outcroppings of rock, one of them known as today as Elysian Park, and because it does, it has a rock understructure, the water in the river almost always is visible at that point. It, it, most of the river runs underwater, underground, but at that point there's visible water, and so it, it was possible for Native people and then later for Spanish-speaking people to dam that uh, water source and then using the force of gravity to bring water down in trenches to the settlement. So that's what made it attractive to the Spanish because it, it meant that they could plant a village there that, that could uh, support agriculture. 
Now, that was one part of the Spanish program. The other part was to establish missions for the native people, uh, turning them into uh, useful workers for the monarchy, and to convert them and make them into Christians. And the nearby mission would have been at Mission San Gabriel, so there were two settlements near uh, in Los Angeles. One was Mission San Gabriel, where the Indians were missionized, and um, some people have compared those to forced labor camps. And then Los Angeles itself, which was settled by common people from Mexico, but right next to the Indian village and the uh, native people of Yang, Yangna, the Tongva, were uh, employed as the majority workers in the um, uh, Pueblo of Los Angeles. And that existed in the Spanish period and then in the Mexican period. Mexico became independent in 1821. And um, from 1821 till 1848, when the United States took over California, uh, in the Mexican period, Los Angeles was, uh, for a time, even the capital of the uh, province of California. So much of the first part of your book centers on the 1840s and the Mexican-American War. Talk, if you would, about the conflicts between these two sides and how the influx of Anglos strained relations between the governments of Mexico and the United States. Sure. Sure. Well, um, citizens of the United States began to find their way to Los Angeles in the 1830s and early 1840s. Uh, A lot of these people were... Uh, former mountain men who had come down uh, to winter in sunny Southern California. So they began to create a small American community in Los Angeles. Uh, Other residents were, um, say, sailors who would stop at San Pedro or San Diego and jump ship and find their way to Los Angeles. So by the time of the Mexican-American War, which began in 1846, there was a small American community in Los Angeles. Most of them then became a kind of fifth column supporting American armed forces and the acquisition of California. That war, um, the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848, the story of California and Los Angeles in that story of that war is generally a kind of sidebar In fact, I think one could argue that California was the most important possession to come out of that war, the most important piece of territory the United States seized, and consequently the struggle for it inside California is highly important. In fact, uh, a force of American dragoons was defeated during that war by California defenders. It was the worst defeat in the war in California. But eventually the United States was successful. It was a brutal conflict. Uh, Many were killed. And the the United States uh, refused to accept an honorable surrender from the Californians, instead insisted on fighting to an unconditional surrender, which uh, cost a lot of blood and treasure. A treaty ends the war and settles California into an uneasy peace. Talk, if you will, about the beginnings of government in the city of Los Angeles in the aftermath of the war. How did things begin to congeal and form into an actual working government? Sure. sure. Well, California was admitted to uh, the United States uh, sometime after the war. Uh, The treaty ending the war was in 1848, but not until 1850 was California admitted to the Union because there was a struggle in Washington over whether the state would come in as a free or a, or a slave state. It eventually came in as a free state as part of the Compromise of 1850. So it was in 1850 that the California state government was organized and then county government. County government in Southern California was the main form of government. Law enforcement was handled by the sheriff's office, uh, there was a sheriff and a single deputy. The county of Los Angeles incorporated territory, which is which now includes Ventura County, Kern County, San Bernardino County, and Orange County. So it was a it, it constituted all of Southern California, with the exception of San Diego. So two men had the responsibility of patrolling that entire area. Consequently, law enforcement was essentially nil. In fact, the sheriff's main job was to collect taxes for which he was paid a percentage of what he collected. 
So he had relatively little incentive to pursue the uh, perpetrators of crime, let alone to prevent crime. Uh, so law enforcement was very weak. The, the justice system was equally weak, the court system. There was one circuit court judge who uh, covered all of Southern California, so he had to ride the circuit between Los Angeles, San Bernardino, and San Diego. Uh, means he held court in Los Angeles for two or three months a year. Law enforcement in Southern California was uh, lacking, to be sure, and in the absence of uh, state-sponsored justice, do-it-yourself justice was uh, the established form. On January 29, 1851, the bodies of two men were found by a group of soldiers on patrol in an area near Los Angeles. Patrick McSwiggan and his fellow teamster, a Creek Indian named Sam. A coroner determines that the men had been murdered. Can you tell that story? Sure. But they were found in Cajon Pass. Now, Cajon Pass is the uh, pass into Southern California from the Mojave Desert. Uh, It's the route uh, which Interstate 15 now travels through to get from Los Angeles to um, Las Vegas. And these Teamsters were hauling some equipment out to a distant desert mine site. And their bodies were found, uh, quickly buried. The coroner then came out to do an inquest uh, at the grave site. The bodies were were disinterred. Uh, So it was very difficult to figure out a cause of death. Uh, It turned out one of the men had been shot multiple times and the other one uh, shot once in the head. And as it happened, the uh, coroner investigated, and he he found out that just before the murder, uh, there had been a a big desert Indian raid across Cajon Pass into the San Bernardino area where they stole a bunch of horses from the Lugo Ranch. The Lugo brothers who ran that ranch were wealthy uh, rancheros in San Bernardino. And uh, they organized a posse, went after the Indians, met the two Teamsters on the road, and the Teamsters told them, we saw the Indians pass this morning, they they didn't seem to have any firearms. So the Lugo Posse quickly went after the Indians, they didn't catch them that night, and then they awoke the next morning to find themselves in the middle of an ambush, the Indians firing firearms down on them. Uh, one of them was killed, and they then retreated. And on the way back, of course, there was a lot of mumbling about the Teamsters who had given them the bad in- information. Aside from that, nothing was known, although the coroner expected that it had been the Lugo pos- posse that had killed the Teamsters. One thing leads to another. Eventually, uh, he made an arrest of, the, of two of the Lugo brothers' sons, and there was a uh, question confession by one of the um, uh, posse, that those uh, boys had committed the murder. But, as I said, justice in Los Angeles was very scarce, and there arose a movement in Los Angeles to lynch the Lugo boys. And the Lugos essentially uh, were delivered from that fate by a conspiracy among the sheriff and uh, the judge and the district attorney and the defending lawyer to get them out of town before they were lynched. I mean, it was a very dramatic story. I tell the story in the book. It it also is very uh, indicative of the state, the the chaotic state of law and order in Los Angeles at that time. When the boys were were freed and uh, able to avoid the the lynching mob, a gang of Angelinos organized and went out to the Lugo place to uh, execute them on their own. They were unsuccessful. Uh, those 12 men found themselves in an ambush by Indian supporters of the Lugos, and 11 of them were, were killed. So there was a standoff here between Mexican, Spanish-speaking Californios and Anglos. This is in 1851, just a few years after the war. So it, it shows the continuing state of hostilities between those two groups, a state of hostilities that would continue for the next 25 years. And the, the leader of that gang of Anglos, a guy by the name of Red Irving, is pretty despicable. <laughs> yeah, he is. One of the many vicious villains in your book. 
Yeah, well, he, he had he himself had apparently been expelled from San Francisco by the first vigilance committee. And although we don't know a lot about uh, the gang that he led, there is some evidence that a few of them were from Australia. They were the uh, immigrants who had come up from Australia for the gold rush, and uh, some of these Australians had a very bad, violent reputation. So these were these were bad characters. I don't want to whitewash the uh, Californios either. The the Lugos and the Lugo boys almost certainly were the murderers of those two teamsters. Uh, but in the context, it was impossible to achieve anything like uh, a reasonable outcome of a, of a judicious process. The situation in mid-19th century Los Angeles, Los Angeles County, was pretty much winner-take-all, devil-take-the-hindmost. One of the, the interesting characters, among many, you write about is Sheriff James R. Barton, the sheriff of Los Angeles County through most of the 1850s. What was he like? And if you could, tell us a story or two about his stint as sheriff during this rough-and-tumble time. Sure. Uh, James Barton, uh, a very interesting character who was uh, violently murdered in an attack by a gang of Mexican and California gangsters, essentially, uh, in 1857. But uh, he had been in Los Angeles at that point for 15 years or so. He came in the early 1840s with a a group of settlers from Missouri. He had been born uh, along the Mississippi River, James Barton. Like many uh, Southern Californians, he he came from that um, Mississippi Valley area, particularly the lower Mississippi Valley, Arkansas, Missouri, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, uh, so uh, these were uh, real frontier types. They uh, came from slave-owning areas. They were um, believers in slavery for the most part. Democrats, uh, big D, when the Democratic Party was a white supremacist party. And he came with a man whose wife, he, whose daughter he married, a man who had uh, come from New Mexico where um, he was married to a uh, Latina and their daughter married Barton. But the uh, young woman died in childbirth during the first year of their marriage. And my own feeling is that that turned Barton uh, in a hard direction. He did not have any children. He uh, roamed around for a while looking for an occupation. He fought in the Mexican War on the side of the Americans. He was a prominent member of the uh, uh, volunteers who fought for the United States, and consequently earned a reputation as a tough character. So he was the second sheriff, but certainly the most famous early sheriff. Uh, He earned his fame in a shootout on what was known in Los Angeles as Negro Alley, um, which was the vice district right next to the plaza, a place where there were gambling dens and saloons and brothels, the place in Los Angeles where more people were murdered than any other. And Barton went there to quiet a dispute on July 4th, uh, 1852, and uh, engaged in a classic shootout with uh, one of the troublemakers in in the middle of Negro Alley. And uh, that made his fame as a man who was uh, bold but reckless. Uh, It was, in fact, his bold recklessness which resulted in his death. Uh, this gang of Californios and uh, Mexicans was terrorizing uh, San Juan Capistrano, a little village, which at that point was part of Los Angeles County. And Barton, with uh, uh, several men, went to settle that problem, riding down to S- San Juan Capistrano from Los Angeles, which was a, at least a two-day ride, and on the morning of their second day, they were ambushed by this gang, which apparently had inside information on his movements. And uh, Barton, along with uh, most of the rest of the posse, was killed. And later, the man who actually shot him told the story that Barton had been shot. He fell from his horse. He uh, broke his arm. He pulled out his second revolver and continued to fire until that those chambers were finished. Then, as they closed in on Barton without any further ammunition, he 
threw the revolver at the advancing man and said, damn me, shoot me if you will. And they did. Shot him right between the eyes. And if I recall correctly in the book, his fighting skills actually bought some time for a couple of the the posse members to escape. Exactly. There were a couple of survivors, and the only reason they got off was that the gang was preoccupied with killing Barton, and so that delayed them for another, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, by which time the other two had uh, established a substantial lead, so they were able to get away. Uh, The terrible thing about that uh, assault, that uh, ambush, that murder, was that Angelinos, Anglo-Angelinos, took it as the provocation for what I can only describe as a series of pogroms that were committed against the Mexican-American community, particularly in the the community surrounding the old mission at San Gabriel, where a mob of Anglos invaded the village, uh, lynched three uh, men suspected of cooperating with the uh, the gang, although they had no evidence for it, and I don't think there is any evidence to support it, and um, then beheaded one of the dead men and used his head as a bowling ball in front of the terrorized community of Mexican-Americans. Uh, I, I, I count this actually the death of Barton and the uh, pogrom in San Gabriel as the the date when essentially the ongoing low-level violence of the Mexican-American War finally ended. Uh, That incident so terrorized the Mexican-American community that uh, we see a a drop in the number of violent incidents. I think people were, were, were playing it very close to the vest, staying low at that point. Uh... So I think that really was the conclusion of the very long Mexican-American War. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything Podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation... We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake, and if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mystery of Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher. And I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, 
and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? A theme in your book is vigilantism, and what often comes from vigilantes are lynchings. And you write about a lot of lynchings. Why was this such a phenomenon in Los Angeles during this time, and what did it do to the community? Vigilantism was a, an ongoing problem. As I say, I mean, people hunger for justice. People need justice. Um, they need to know that the forces of evil uh, have been set aright. They need to know that criminals and offenders have been dealt justice, uh, whipped by justice, as they might have said. And in the absence of the ability of the state of California or the county of Los Angeles to administer justice in anything like an effective way, people took the law into their own hands. And we know that that still happens where people feel that there is no justice, they will try to make it themselves. So uh, that's totally understandable, uh, that people would uh, organize themselves to try to affect justice when it's unavailable elsewhere. What is very unfortunate, however, of course, is that vigilantism is toxic. That is to say, once you start down that road, it is very, very difficult to go anywhere else but to the logical end, which is lynching. And, you know, there's no guarantee that the kind of process that vigilantes engage in is going to have the, you know, the uh, legal rights that defendants expect, that we expect, to protect ourselves from false accusation. Plenty of people were falsely accused. Plenty of, plenty of people were, were the victims of vigilantism uh, for crimes they did not commit or for crimes that were, in fact, trivial compared to the punishments meted out. And yet there were those in, in Los Angeles, including prominent members of the Republican Party, who believed that vigilantism uh, was the way, not only the way to go, but the preferred way, that uh, giving the people a direct say in the administration of justice by holding people's courts and public executions held and sponsored by ordinary citizens would be the best way of affecting law enforcement and uh, enacting a just order in Los Angeles, uh, that, despite the fact that there were prominent individuals who made those arguments. And I detail these arguments in the book. Um, the fact is, the longer vigilantism went on, the closer they came to a kind of uh, apocalyptic scenario. Another thing that struck me about your book, not only do you have these clear-cut, brutal villains, but the supposed good guys, the men tasked with protecting the city and its laws, committed plenty of crimes themselves. One man in particular comes to mind, Thomas Foster, who is elected as mayor of Los Angeles after he rapes a young girl. And evidently many in the town knew that this happened and, and didn't seem to care. It's so disconcerting to, to read that many of these men, men of authority, did whatever they wanted without consequences. Yeah, well, there's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, the example of uh, Thomas Foster, uh, who's not to be confused with Stephen Foster, is not related, but he was also a mayor uh, of Los Angeles and a, and a, and a very complicated character. But Thomas Foster was also mayor, a doctor. There's good evidence uh, that he um, uh, committed the rape of a 13-year-old girl. Uh, he was accused of that rape by the girl and her mother. Uh, the girl and her mother then uh, were accused of being prostitutes by, the, uh, by, by Foster's defense attorney. And in order to uh, avoid that stigma, they dropped the charges. Uh, and yet it was, a common, it was common knowledge in Los Angeles that Foster had been accused of the crime. And it became a laughing matter, uh, not a serious matter. It was joked about. 
And this points to another aspect of the violence in Los Angeles that uh, I emphasize in my book, and that is the violence against women. Domestic violence was extremely common. Women came to court, and I've looked at the court records, uh, the Justice of the Peace records. Uh, Women came into court at many different levels, complaining of the violence of their boyfriends and their husbands. And sometimes they were punished, but generally those punishments were uh, very slight. Uh, And I believe that uh, this climate of domestic violence, which was extremely prevalent, and the violence exercised against women was dramatic and chilling. Uh, I believe it created a, a culture of violence. That is, it created an expectation uh, among, for example, children who are being raised in these households that the most appropriate response to conflict between people is violence. Not conflict amelioration, not compromise, not conversation, but violence. That violence is the appropriate response to conflict. And so I have a number of instances where men are accused of violence against their wives, and then I find them, those same men later, in the criminal record, accused of violence against other men. And I believe that that is, was a uh, predominant pattern of male individuals learning about violent behavior at home and practicing it at home and then taking it out into the streets, resulting in a record of violence and a level of homicide, which is probably uh, as high as it has ever been in American history. And it's not to say that there were not good, honest men in Los Angeles as well. There certainly were. And one I'm hoping you might talk about is Hayes. Uh, ben, ben Hayes, that, that's his first name, right? Benjamin Hayes, yes. What an exceptional man. Could, could you talk a little bit about him? Yes. Benjamin Hayes was another of these Missouri immigrants. He came uh, to California in 1850 to participate in the gold rush. He, had, he was headed for the north. He came on the southern trail, which brought him up through Los Angeles. And when he uh, got to Los Angeles, he fell in love with it. Uh, Hayes was a devout Catholic. He was a a man who was fluent in Spanish, so his Catholicism and his uh, Spanish linguistic ability put him in a good position to function as an attorney, which he was trained to be in Los Angeles. So it was not long before Hayes became what is essentially the district attorney of Los Angeles, and then he was elected to be uh, the um, district court judge. Uh, He's the guy who wrote the circuit uh, from San Bernardino, San Diego, and Los Angeles. Uh, Hayes was an active opponent against vigilantism. He did everything he could to strengthen the court that he had. And and in particular, there was an incident in 1854 in which a Californio was accused and tried and convicted of murder, and a Texan, an Anglo-Texan, was accused, tried, and convicted of murder. There was, a, there was a movement to enforce vigilant, vigilantism and lynch law against these two individuals, but uh, that didn't happen. And Judge Hayes sat as the judge in both cases, and he convicted both men and sentenced them both to die uh, on the gallows in Los Angeles on the same day in January 1855. Uh, as that date approached, and everyone saw that as the great, this is going to be the great test. Can Los Angeles actually convict a murderer and execute a murderer, or does lynch law present a better way? So days before the scheduled execution, the uh, county sheriff of Los Angeles uh, received a a stay of execution for the Anglo-Texan, but none for the uh, Spanish-speaking California. The Spanish-speaking community in Los Angeles rose up and said, if the Texan is not executed at the same time as our kinsman, then we will break into the jail and execute him ourselves. They were supported by a large percentage of the Anglo community, in fact. And uh, they presented their 
demands to Sheriff Barton, who was the sheriff, and Barton, as he should have, said, no, I'm going to follow the law, I'm going to do what the law says, I'm going to execute the one and stay the execution of the other, pending uh, notification from the court, Supreme Court of California. And so the California was hanged at the appointed time and place. And when the Anglo was not brought out to hang, be hanged, the mayor of Los Angeles, Stephen Foster, who was a Connecticut Yankee, but married to the daughter of one of the of the Lugo family, and so therefore with a uh, an interest in the California community, the mayor of Cal- Los Angeles resigned and led the lynch mob that broke into the jail and took out the Anglo Texan and lynched him. Now. It's it's a single story. It's it, it, it's not the you know the turning point in Los Angeles history. But I believe that at that moment, when lynch law prevailed over Benjamin Hayes's legal justice system, the fate of Los Angeles for the next twenty years was sealed. That from that point on, lynch law was the preeminent way of achieving justice in the Pueblo. Another thing I find so interesting about your book is the diversity of frontier Los Angeles. Anglos, Mexicans, Native Americans, African Americans, some free, some slaves, and Chinese all coexisted. How did they do it <laughs> with all the, the violence and mistrust and racism? With great difficulty. <laughs> with, with, with great difficulty. Uh, you know, sometimes some people have described... Los Angeles has a great melting pot. In fact, it was a boiling cauldron. Um, n- no one's identity got melted into anyone else's. Uh, people maintained their ethnic identity. Uh, in fact, that shows up in the uh, statistics of homicide. Uh, as part of the project, I made uh, a point of collecting data on every murder in Los Angeles from 1830 until 1875. Now, so that includes 18 years under the under Mexican jurisdiction and the remainder under uh, United States jurisdiction. And that that list is, as far as I can tell, very close to being complete. And so I can actually, using that and population statistics, I can compute the homicide rate, and I know a lot about those homicides. In fact, I've taken that database and I've posted it online, so it's the raw data is available to anyone who would like to work on this problem. So when we look at the perpetrators of homicide, for example, in Los Angeles during that period, uh, I can break them down by ethnicity. So uh, among Indian perpetrators, uh, and Indians uh, constituted 13% of all the perpetrators of murder in Los Angeles, among Indian perpetrators, more than 90% of their victims were Indian. I can also look at uh, Latino perpetrators who committed 40% of all the homicides. They constituted about 45% of the population, so a little bit less than their uh, population percentage as, uh, in homicides. So 39% of uh, all homicides were, were committed by Latinos. Uh, 55% of their victims were Latinos. Now, not as impressive as the Indian statistic, but nevertheless, a majority of Latino perpetrator, perpetrators of homicide murdered Latino victims. Anglos would get a different pattern. Anglos constituted, again, about 45% of all of the population, but they made up 50% of the perpetrators of homicide. And 55% of their victims were either Latino or Indian. So what we see is a, a, a very clear pattern of in-group violence for Native people and a little less clear, but still a pattern of in-group violence for Latinos. But among Anglos, we see a pattern that suggests they were equal opportunity perpetrators. They went after Indians, they went after Latinos, they went after other Anglos, but not they did not stay within the group in the same way that Latinos and Indians did. So I'd like to ask you to tell another story, that of Don Maria Merced Reigns and her brother-in-law, 
Robert Carlyle. Can you talk about the conflict between the two and how it culminated? Yeah. So the woman in question, she, she was the daughter of a, a wealthy Anglo ranchero, uh, a man who had married, again, into the Lugo family. So he was married to a Latina, and he had two daughters. When he died in the middle of the 1850s, they were left very wealthy women. This uh, man owned an extensive rancho property in the south part, the southeastern part of Los Angeles, Los Angeles County. And so they inherited uh, those ranches. And Maria Merced, the daughter in question, married a man who could only be described as a kind of wife hunter, uh, a man by the name of John Raines, and uh, a man from uh, Mississippi. And then her sister, uh, Fran- Francesca, uh, married another fortune hunter, a man by the name of Robert Carlyle, both of these men, Anglos. And they, they tried to make a go of it as a large extended family on the father's estate. But as you can imagine, the, the two Anglo men didn't get along very well, and they chafed on, at each other's authority. Uh, so uh, Reigns and Carlyle made a deal where Carlyle, and now this is not their property, this is their wife's property, but Carl, uh, Reigns sold his wife's share of the property to her sister through Carlyle and then built a rancho of his own. But there was still contest over the uh, distribution of the estate. Reigns uh, goes on to become a prominent Democrat. He he bought a big hotel in downtown Los Angeles. He spent lavishly. He was constantly leaving his Rancho Cucamonga and going into Los Angeles to party at his hotel. He apparently had a lover there, uh, a prostitute that he saw regularly. Uh, one On one of these trips uh, to, into Los Angeles, he was murdered. And people suspected that it was his wife who did the murdering. Uh, they suspected that she, in association with another California ranchero, um, was uh, were the murderers. In fact, I think it's probably much more likely that the murderer was his brother-in-law, the husband of the sister, Robert Carlyle. But at any rate, Robert Carlyle became the principal persecutor of the Californio who was thought to be in cahoots with the widow. Then that man turns up murdered. So it's a trail of intrigue and murder which seems to have no end. Finally, um, and, and Judge Hayes is involved in this as well. He, in fact, is advising the widow on what she should do. Eventually, Carlyle, the uh, purported murderer of both these men, loses his legal rights to the widow's property. And he then takes out his anger on the a deputy sheriff who was named to the executor of the estate. And in a dramatic shootout in the hotel that his former brother-in-law once owned, Carlisle and the three King brothers shoot it out. One King brother is murdered or is killed. Uh, Carlisle is killed. Uh, it's one of these classic gunfights that uh, you thought only happened in the movies but in fact, many, many people saw it happen in Los Angeles and, and uh, testified to it. And this is actually brings me to a point that I think is worth making here. Of course, as you, as you began by saying, you know, when we think about Los Angeles, we think about Hollywood, we think about the movies. Of course, the movies invented the Western, uh, the most popular uh, movie genre in uh, the 20th century, uh, and staged all those shootouts and all those battles, all those gunfights, all those lynchings, without ever once making a film about itself. There's no Western about Los Angeles. And without even knowing it, uh, they were actually filming the story of their own town. Los Angeles, in fact, has such a rich, violent history, it deserves to be the subject of a, uh, a Western extravaganza, but never has been. I was actually going to ask you about that later, but I'll I'll take your cue and ask my question now. This period of the 1850s, I mean, it's nonstop action. Over the course of years and years and years, 
Why hasn't Hollywood made a series about this? And just to bring up the King brothers again, all sons of Samuel King, and I've got to mention their names because it says a lot about the family. The three sons' names were Francis Marion King, Andrew Jackson King, and Sam Houston King. (laughs) And as you said, one of the brothers dies in this gunfight with Robert Carlyle at the Bell Union Saloon. Another one is injured but but survives. But but they got into other crazy showdowns, too, in, in the streets of Los Angeles. I mean, Hollywood, please put this on screen. This should be a, a series on HBO or Netflix. I couldn't agree, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you talked to anybody about bringing this to life? Yes. Uh, we're in... Uh, the book has been optioned. And uh, we're, we're in conversation with a major production company about doing a multi-season uh, uh, television series. Oh, good. So, I'm glad it's not just a two-hour movie. No, they they particularly like the book, as, as, as you've just said, because it's so chock-full of potential episodes. And, you know, I, and I would go on to say that, I mean, yes, and each of those... Each of those episodes can stand alone. You know, the story of this lynching or that murder, that uh, domestic intrigue. um, There's politics. There's all kinds of things going on. Uh, The story, I think, has an arc. That is to say, we start in a lawless and isolated frontier, and this is uh, a perfectly understandable and laudable struggle of people on that frontier, trying to create a world in which justice is possible. And they try to do it in many different ways. And uh, what they need is the power and authority of the state. And that is very long in coming. And before it does come, the do-it-yourself violence, the uh, outlaw violence, I call it in the book, really reaches a kind of crescendo that is... uh, creates a, a very horrible incident that is the Chinese massacre of 1871. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that too, if, if you wouldn't mind terribly telling that story. Yeah, sure. Just to finish the point, so there is an arc in the book, things get worse and worse and worse until they get so bad they begin to get better. And uh, that is to say that outlaw justice is finally revealed as a system of anarchy. And gradually at that point, people turn their attention to what they should have been doing all along, which is doing everything they can to strengthen the powers of law enforcement and the court system. And then you begin to see the violence decline, but not until that point. And we can go now and we can talk about that that Chinese massacre if you want. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. So... You know, one of the things about vigilantism is that it can easily transition into mob violence. I have to give you an example. Uh, A rustler is uh, brought into Los Angeles, a man is brought into Los Angeles accused of uh, rustling. Uh, He's convicted and tried to be whipped. So this was, they they were still doing public whippings. Uh, and so uh, they tie him to a post in, in on the plaza, and they're going to whip him. Or then, just at that point, a group brings on another guy. He's been arrested for uh, for stealing on Negro Alley. Well, we'll whip him too. They say. Well, this is exactly the kind of thing that happens. There's another instance where a man is convicted of a crime and about to be executed. And as he stands on the gallows, along comes a group with another guy. Well, we just picked this guy up down on Negro Alley. Uh, He knifed uh, a man who was selling tamales. Well, we'll hang him too, they say. This is the way vigilantism can easily become simply mob violence, mob rule. The Chinese began to come into Los Angeles in the uh, uh, 1860s following the Civil War. Uh, The first Chinese community, maybe 1864. By 1870, we have a substantial community of several hundred Chinese, mostly men, 
living in Los Angeles. Now, they lived along Negro Alley. Why? Because they could not find, no one else would, would let to them. So they ended up living in the Vice District. And by 1870, Negro Alley is largely also Chinatown. The Chinese have their own form of do-it-yourself justice. They have um, these associations that battle with each other for uh, membership and for the con- control of their own vice trade, opium, prostitution, illegal gambling, uh, lotteries, all kinds of things. And so these associations are fighting with each other. In the middle of one such fight in 1871, an Anglo is shot and killed. He stepped into it, and he got shot, and he was killed. And so this is a cause for vigilantism, a, a a, um, a vigilante group forms, a, a lynch mob forms. They want to get the Chinese killed him. The sheriff doesn't know quite what to do, so instead of dispersing the crowd, he deputizes them. Suddenly they're empowered with whatever legal authority there is. This starts as a, a vigilance group. It becomes a lynch mob. By Within a couple of hours, it has formed into a violent mob that eventually breaks into Chinatown, drags 19 Chinese out, and lynches them on the street uh, in one of the worst nights of violence in Los Angeles history. The worst anti-Chinese riot to that point in American history. This was an event foretold. Earlier, uh, the critics of vigilantism had said, if we keep going down this path, the days of terror are upon us. Well, that night in October 1871, the day of day of terror arrived, and in the hard, cold light of the aftermath, Angelinos began to ask themselves: There must isn't there a better way? Isn't there a better way to try to achieve justice? Um, it's doubtful that any of the Chinese that were lynched had anything at, whatsoever to do with the gang fighting that had gone on and precipitated the affair. But that's the kind of um, imprecision and our anarchy that is uh, the result of um, do-it-yourself or outlaw justice. This has been great. Uh, Where can people go to find out more about you and your work? I teach at Yale University, so uh, if they will simply Google Yale Department of History, Farragher, you'll come up with my webpage. Uh, In addition, you can uh, buy my book, at any bookstore, but in particular, it's uh, on Amazon. So if you go to the if you go to Amazon and and uh, Google my name, John Mac Farragher, or the title of the book, Eternity Street: Violence and Justice in Frontier Los Angeles, that will come up with a list of my other books as well. So uh, I invite people to take a look at what 19th century Los Angeles really looked like. I appreciate your time so much today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.